Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Christ, Part 21. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We began last week to look at the most important objection to the doctrine of penal substitution. The doctrine states that Christ uh, died to pay the penalty for our sins, and the objection is that this would be unjust and therefore immoral on God's part because Christ was an innocent person. And I attempted to formulate this argument sympathetically in terms of six premises. Number one, God is perfectly just. Number two, if God is perfectly just, he cannot punish an innocent person. Three, therefore God cannot punish an innocent person. Four, but Christ was or is an innocent person. Five, therefore God cannot punish Christ. Uh, Six, if God cannot punish Christ, then penal substitution is false. And we saw last time that someone who um, holds to penal substitution but denies that God punished Christ can avoid this argument very easily simply by denying premise six. He would hold that God afflicted Christ with the suffering which would have been our punishment had it been inflicted on us instead. So he would maintain that the truth of penal substitution does not require that God punish Christ, and the argument is invalidated. On the other hand, suppose we do hold that God did punish Christ, which is what most penal substitution theorists would say. Then we need to examine the first two premises, that God is perfectly just, and that if God is perfectly just, he cannot punish an innocent person. And I suggested that this, will, this needs to be contextualized within a, a theory of where moral values and duties come from. If God himself determines what is just or unjust, then it doesn't make any sense to accuse God of injustice, because he is the ultimate standard of justice. And so if God determines that punishing Christ for our sins and our place is just, Who can gainsay him? Who can say that God is unjust? It is God who is the source of justice. Now, perhaps the best um, face that can be put on the objection in response to this point would be to say, well, now wait a minute. Even you divine command theorists do not think that God can do something contrary to his own nature. Uh, He can issue whatever commands he wishes so long as they are consistent with his nature. And he can act in any way um, he wishes. He has no moral duties to fulfill, but nevertheless he has to act consistently with his own nature. So the objector might say, perhaps retributive justice is part of God's nature, and therefore it's impossible for God to act contrary to the principles of retributive justice because he would be acting contrary to his own nature. Now that response, I think, um, while making a good point, 
doesn't distinguish or differentiate adequately between different accounts of retributive justice. What is retributive justice, after all? Well, on the contemporary scene, there are two different forms of retributive justice that are distinguished by theorists. One would be a positive account, positive retributivism, and the other is negative retributivism. Positive retributivism says that the guilty should be punished because they deserve it. Punishment of the guilty is justified because they deserve their punishment. This is their just desert. Negative retributivism says that the innocent should not be punished because they do not deserve it. So the first one says that the guilty should be punished because they deserve it. Negative retributivism says the innocent should not be punished because they do not deserve it. Now, the essence of retributive justice lies in positive retributivism. The heart of the theory of retributive justice is that the punishment of the guilty is an intrinsic good because the guilty deserve it. And the Bible makes it very clear that God is a positive retributivist. Um, Genesis, or rather Exodus 34:7 says, for example, that he will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34:7. So God is committed to positive retributive justice. Uh, the guilty deserve punishment and therefore should be punished. But how do we know that God is an unqualified negative retributivist? Even if God has prohibited human beings from punishing innocent persons and has established that as a moral norm in human society, and even if God is too good himself to punish an innocent human person, nevertheless, he might still reserve to himself the prerogative to punish an innocent divine person, namely Christ in place of the guilty. And this extraordinary exception would be not a defect in his justice, but rather a result of his goodness. And if that's the case, then premise two of this argument is simply false. It is not true that God, uh, being perfectly just, cannot punish the innocent. So what I'm suggesting is that one way to respond to this objection is to affirm that God is unqualifiedly committed by his very nature to positive retributive justice, but he is only qualifiedly a negative retributivist because he reserves the right to punish an innocent divine person, namely Christ, for sin. Any question or discussion about that response to the Objection. Yes, John, back here in the corner. For the negative justice, retributive justice, when the Bible talks about and the sins of the Father go down to generation after generation, you know, this generational type of passing down of, of punishment, how does that work out with what you're saying about that's the equality? That's a really good question. Um, and I think there are two ways to look at it. One way would be to say this shows that God is not a negative retributivist. That, that in this case he is willing to punish 
innocent people for the sins of their ancestors. On the other hand, as I said the other week, it could be here that he's saying the consequences of the father's sins are visited upon subsequent generations. And I distinguish between the consequences of sin and punishment for sin. And it could well be the case that in the instance you're talking about, what we're talking about are non-punitive consequences of sin that are visited upon subsequent generations. Um, Ezekiel reacts very negatively to the idea that these people are being punished for the sins of their forebears. Ezekiel says very clearly, the soul that sins shall die. What do you mean by saying that, uh, that people will bear the sins of their fathers? He, he rejects that. So that would suggest that this is perhaps to be interpreted in terms of consequences rather than um, in terms of punishment. So that was why I suggested that God may be qualifiedly committed to negative retributivism in that he prohibits human beings from punishing innocent people um, and also that he himself will not punish an innocent human person for the sins of somebody else. Yes. Yes, I was just going to quote actually the passage you were alluding to uh, where Ezekiel, God through Ezekiel takes on this popular saying among the Israelites, which was the, the, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And God says through Ezekiel, no longer shall you recite this proverb in Israel, the soul that sins shall die is the one that yeah. shall die. In other words, a misunderstanding, perhaps, of what the subsequent generational consequences were, meaning that, oh, well, you sin and somebody else pays for it, you know, and, right. and so on. Yes. Good. Thank you. Don? I would raise the point, the book of Romans, and again in the Old Testament, it clearly says, is any man righteous? No, not one. And if that's true, then there is no such thing as punishing the innocent. I think that's a very good point, Don. Um, in these cases that John raised, the children are also engaged in the same sorts of sins. And so it's not really the case that um, sins are being visited upon innocent people. So I do think that that's a point well worth remembering when we, we think about these cases. Taewon? Um, Dr. Craig, um I don't think God punishes Christ. Um, the nature of sin is it does harm to others. And so in Chinese culture, the justice, justice is maintained by revenge. And the revenge passed down to generations. Um, the son that are obligated to re revenge their father's uh, enemy. And so I think Christ take on the punishment of the sin so that revenge can, he can put a stop to this perpetuated revenge. And I don't think that's God punishing Christ, but he takes it on so yeah. that it can put it in. Well, that would be in accord with the first line of response that I suggested to the argument, which would deny step six of the argument. I, and I think that is open to the defender of penal substitution. The Lord clearly prohibits that kind of vengeful 
activity um, when he says, do not avenge yourself. Uh, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and therefore prohibits this kind of activity to human persons, reserving for himself the prerogative of judging human beings and punishing them. All right, well, it seems to me that this serves to dispense with the objection. Um, This uh, response to the objection will grant that retributive justice does indeed belong to the divine nature. It's essential to God, and therefore it's impossible that God act contrary to the principles of at least positive retributive justice, and for the most part negative retributive justice as well, with the marked exception of reserving the prerogative to punish an innocent divine person for our sins. And if this is correct, then the second premise of the argument is false and the argument falls apart. But there's more that can be said as well for drawing premise two into question. And so I want to move on to a second line of response. And this is to distinguish between the prima facie demands of retributive justice and the ultima facie demands of retributive justice. That is to say, the prima facie demands would be the face value demands of retributive justice. The ultima facie demands would be when you weigh other moral considerations and consider one's ultimate uh, moral obligation in a certain case. Another way of putting this is to say that Those who defend retributive justice distinguish between the justification of punishment in general and the justification of a specific act of punishment. They are trying to say that uh, in general the guilty should be punished because they deserve it. But there can be specific cases where the demands of retributive justice are weighed because there are outweighing moral considerations. So um, if that's the case, uh, then for example, um, even though positive retributive justice is true, sometimes prosecutors will waive it by giving a plea bargain, say, to the accused criminal, so that people who are guilty of even more heinous crimes can be convicted by means of their testimony. Or in other cases, the demands of retributive justice might be waived because uh, imposing them would deny the moral rights of others uh, and rob them of their rights. And therefore, just because punishment is in general justified doesn't mean that it's always justified in some specific case. introduced to you the other day uh, Joel Feinberg, a very famous legal philosopher, Uh, and in an article that he co-authored with Hyman Gross, uh, Feinberg and Gross point out that there are occasions in which a person can be fully justified in producing an unjust effect upon another person. Person A may be justified in violating person B's rights when there is no third alternative open to him. uh, Feinberg and Gross say, and I quote, 
in that case we can say that B was unjustly treated although A's act resulting in that effect was not an instance of unjust behavior. For an act to have an unjust quality, whatever its effects, it must be, objectively speaking, the wrong thing to do in the circumstances. Unexcused and unjustified, voluntarily undertaken and deliberately chosen by an unrushed actor who is well aware of the alternatives open to him. So what Feinberg and Gross are saying are there are cases in which a person can be ultimately justified in producing an unjust result for some person, violating a person's rights because of these overriding moral considerations. Now apply that to the case of Christ. In the case of the death of Christ, the penal theorist says that God was fully justified in allowing Christ to be unjustly treated for the sake of the salvation of mankind. Uh, the biblical scholar Donald Carson uh, reminds us, and I quote, it is the unjust punishment of the servant in Isaiah 53 that is so remarkable. Forgiveness, restoration, salvation, reconciliation, all are possible not because sins have somehow been canceled as if they never were, but because another bore them unjustly. Carson says, by this adverb, unjustly, I mean that the person who bore them was just and did not deserve the punishment. Not that some moral system that God was administering was thereby distorted. In the specific case then of Christ, um, the demands of negative retributive justice were outweighed by heavier moral considerations. So that even if it's true that God is an unqualified negative retributivist as well as positive retributivist, in view of these overriding uh, moral considerations, the demands of negative retributive justice can be waived in the case of Christ, so that God could punish an innocent person. He can produce an unjust effect upon Christ uh, even though he is fully justified morally in doing so. It is consistent with his divine nature. Any comments then on that response to the uh, second premise of this argument? Yes, Steve? Seems like when you're saying somebody can be justified, in other words, uh, an a heinous action can be justified if it's better overall. That may be true. Like it says, elevate two elevators are going to crash, and you got one with twenty people and one with ten people. Yeah. So you let the ten one die, but you're both going to be punished. You're going to be punished for killing ten. You don't want to kill thirty by not making a decision. They both fall. But and so that so you're yeah, justifying I, Hitler and people like that when you use that logic. Now, no, I well, I, I guess I disagree, Steve. I think there can be cases where the just thing to do will be to allow an unjust act to or effect to happen to a person and that this is the moral thing to do in, in virtue of these overriding would, moral considerations. I would not call it moral or just. I would say it would be the best thing to do. Well, okay? but that word best, that, that's well, a well, moral No, but what term, I'm saying is right? you're going to pay for doing it. 
What? Yeah, you're going to pay for killing those 10 people. That is not removed. Like, um, there's a lot of things. Well, uh, now let's, know, think of, let's think of the examples look, that look. I appealed to, where a plea bargain is offered to a criminal to give testimony that will serve to convict other people of even more heinous crimes. In a case like that, justice is not done to that criminal. That, uh, the demands of justice are waived because of overriding considerations. Um, and it seems to me that there could be many other examples that we might think of where the uh, prima facie demands of justice are not enforced because of these overriding ultimate concerns. Right. Well, I, I don't oppose that so much as killing somebody else. So that so you got to kill one person so that uh -huh. so you can convict those twenty. I don't see that. Not let not inflicting yeah. punishment on somebody is different. My well, thing is, the question would be then: in in the case of Christ, would God be justified ultimately in punishing Christ for our sins? Uh, and waiving the demands of negative retributive justice. Well, it seems to me that plausibly yeah, that he could. I don't believe God would punish an innocent man. He wouldn't punish Christ. But listen, I believe Christ was no longer innocent when he voluntarily that, took okay, our sin upon that's himself. That's the next point. That, but what we're well, doing here is we're examining various well, ways of well, responding. Now, well, number three, point number three seems like you're saying, well, if God's crooked and, and doesn't obey by the same law he puts over us, then that would be true. And so, yeah, that would be true. But that's not the case. I mean, God is totally righteous. Well, um, I'm going to agree with the point that you just made. But it does seem to me that this is an important distinction that is very common in legal discussions uh, that allow the prima facie demands of justice to simply be waived in certain cases because they're overriding considerations. And in the case of Christ, to me at least, I could see where God would waive the demands of negative retributive justice in order to secure the salvation of well, mankind. I, I think he would put his, the justification, arbitrariness of, of his law in jeopardy if he were to do that. He would not punish, punish Christ if Christ did not willfully receive our sin. Like, I, in fact, I think... Okay, well, again, you're, you're going on to the next point where I am going to agree with you. But for now... Uh, I'm making a more preliminary point, and if you don't like it, that's fine. You can you can reject it, um, but I think it's a point that is worth making. That when people talk about the demands of retributive justice, they are always talking about just prima facie demands, and everyone recognizes that these demands are often waived because of overriding moral considerations that are, are heavier than the demands of retributive justice in, in specific cases. Um, yes, Bob. Just a comment re addressing what, the first thing, Steve's uh, first example, would you like to speak to the just war theory in uh, the uh, Old Testament, God having also used uh, people and commanded them to do certain uh, forms of justice and punishment to groups? Yeah, I'm not sure 
I would have to think more about that, Bob, but I think what you're getting at would be in the case of a just war, you are justified in killing people, for example, and lying and doing other things that prima facie you wouldn't be justified in doing, but because of these overriding moral considerations, these are now morally permissible and perhaps even obligatory. Um, and so I, I think you're making a similar point here or illustrating it. And for those that are pacifists, they would say, regardless of just war, we, they refuse to kill. They're very, very strict about that one aspect. Right, right. They would not compromise the prima facie demands in view of these ultima facie considerations. But just war people would. Um, and that's what I'm pleading for here. Now, I'm going to say with Steve that, in fact, we don't need to do that. But that's the next point. Yes, yeah, Steve. Don't we have to draw a distinction between temporal justice and eternal justice? Because, you know, for example, God doesn't, um, his justice is frequently deferred. Yes. Right. I mean, his forbearance. So, and we know that all things work together for good. Well, there's all kinds of evil that's not punished immediately. Yes. Right. Now, how would that apply to the case at hand here in the his case of ultima Christ? Fosse, he, he's, um, we don't see immediate justice for evil deeds, right? Because there's a yes. better good in God's plan. Why, why do we see injustice in the world yeah. if he's in control and could stop any circumstance if he chose to? He allows it to go on, doesn't have immediate justice for those sins because there's some right. greater good that he sees, right? that we don't necessarily see. Right. Okay. Um, I'm not, not sure, though, I see the applicability to the question of whether or not God could have waived the demands of strict negative retributive justice in the case of Christ. Well, uh, because there, that's, that wouldn't ever be reversed. No, no, not with Christ. Okay. No, I'm, t I'm talking in... So, so there's two distinctions, I think. One is people versus... Christ, yes, and the other is eternal versus temporal. Yes, God's all right. God's justice is e eternally absolute, but temporally we see all kinds of injustice and that He allows sure. and permits. Sure. So, well, let me go on in the interest of time to my last point, uh, and that is to question premise four of this argument that Christ was an innocent person. Up to this point, we've just taken for granted that Christ was indeed an innocent person. But for penal substitution theorists like the reformers, like Francois Turretin that we examined, who affirmed that our sins were imputed to Christ, there's no question in the case of Christ of God's punishing an innocent person and therefore violating even the prima facie demands of negative retributive justice. For in virtue of the imputation of our sins to Christ, Christ was legally guilty before God. Now, of course, one needs to add immediately that because our sins are merely imputed to Christ and not infused into Christ, Christ himself remains personally virtuous. He, he remains a paragon of compassion, selflessness, purity, 
courage, and so forth. But he was declared legally guilty by God uh, in virtue of our sins being imputed to him. And therefore, he was legally liable to punishment. And therefore, given the doctrine of the imputation of sins, there's no need to compromise even the prima facie demands of negative retributive justice, which will make Steve feel more comfortable. Uh, I'm sure in this case, God can be both a positive and negative retributivist in an unqualified sense, but because of the imputation of our sins to Christ, there's just no question here of God's punishing an innocent person. Now, the objector at this point might say, well, I think that imputing our sins to Christ is itself unjust. Uh, To impute our sins to an innocent person is itself an unjust act. And sometimes people like this will raise objections to vicarious liability in the law, which we've discussed in previous sessions, where the guilt or deeds of a subordinate can be imputed to his employer, and the employer uh, will be held liable or guilty for the deeds of his subordinate. Uh, and some people have protested that, that would be, that's unjust, uh, even if it's permitted in our legal system for practical reasons. But under what conditions would such vicarious liability be unjust? It would seem to me that it would be unjust only in the case in which it's non-voluntary. Only in the case in which vicarious liability is imputed in a non-voluntary way to the, the employer or superior. But suppose you have an employer who has compassion upon his employee and knows that it would destroy the employee to exact the demands of retributive justice at his hand. And so the employer says, exact it from me. I'm willing to be made vicariously liable and to pay the entire liability, the entire penalty for the deeds of my subordinate. In that case, how could that be said to be unjust? Uh, It seems to me that so long as it is voluntary, there can be no charge of injustice in the imputation of the liability to the uh, employer for the deeds done by the employee. And therefore, given the doctrine of the imputation of sins, uh, this argument, I think, uh, again, is in, uh, it falls apart. It's unsound because it is not, in fact, true that Christ is an innocent person. Any comment or discussion on that challenge to step four? Yes, over here. Let, we'll get the microphone to you so we can all hear. In this connection, before we go, someone, maybe you have it there, someone could dig up the little passage where Paul talks about Onesimus and his wrongs, and Paul says, put it on my account and anything, oh, you know, yeah. and, you know, my, my good goes to him and his bad goes to me, you know, that sort of thing. I hadn't thought of that. That's in Philemon, where Paul says, if, if he owes you anything, put it to my account. Uh, he, he's trying to free a runaway slave. And that's an interesting metaphor, because... As we saw, the whole idea of ransom and redemption was the word used in biblical times to buy slaves out of captivity and to give them freedom. And that would be the case with Onesimus, who was a renegade slave that Paul had led to Christ. 
and now wants to allow to go free. Yes, Cash? This might not be exactly on topic, but it came to mind, this verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that's commonly said, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin, or some translations say to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But a little research on that verse, um, I found out that there's uh, some competing manuscripts that actually kind of read it more to become a sin offering for us, not to become sin. And that really changes the meaning of it because to say that he who did not know sin to become sin, it's like you know, for him to be transformed and become sin itself is an entirely different thing than to become a sin offering for us. I think you're right that they are different. Hmm. And I, I don't think this is based upon manuscript evidence, but just oh, is it more a, of a translational interpretation okay. of the word for sin there. And I take it at face value that this is teaching the doctrine of imputation, not infusion, as you say. He can't become an evil person. But legally, our sins are imputed to Christ in the same way that his righteousness is imputed to us. Well, to summarize then and conclude, it seems to me then that this objection to the doctrine of penal substitution uh, is, again, very challengeable. If you don't hold that God punished Christ for our sins, then step six goes by the board. On the other hand, on a divine command theory of justice, God himself is the one who determines what is just or unjust, and so he can punish an innocent person uh, if that accords with his nature. Uh, And it does seem to accord with his nature that he would voluntarily give his own life as a sacrifice for our sins. If you say, well, no, no, the Uh, demands of retributive justice are essential to God and therefore cannot be compromised, then we distinguish between positive and negative retributive justice and say that while God is an unqualified positive retributivist, he's only qualifiedly a negative retributivist. He reserves for himself the right to punish an innocent divine person, uh, should he so want to. You can also then distinguish between the prima facie demands of retributive justice and the ultima facie demands and maintain that in the case of Christ there were overriding moral considerations so that God was perfectly acting in a just way to waive the demands of negative retributive justice in Christ's case. Uh, And all these would go to call into question premise two of the argument. Finally, um, the doctrine of the imputation of sins shows that Christ was not in fact an innocent person, that he was legally guilty before God, um, and that therefore uh, premise four of the argument is false. So it seems to me that all of the crucial premises in this argument are eminently challengeable, and that therefore there is no um, compelling objection to the justice of penal substitution. Well, let's close now with a benediction. And now may him who died to purify us, to cleanse us from sin and from its power, enable you to live holy and righteously before him throughout this week until we gather again. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.